I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. Guys, it's Rico here, CEO of Source Fan Asia, co-host of the channel podcast, and the host of the Source Fan Asia YouTube channel, of course. Back with, you guessed it, another <laughs> one. This is another video that I'm doing. I'm just doing Q and A. A lot of people submitted questions for our webinar, and even though our webinars ended up being three hours long, including the uh, the Q and A part of it. Like I would say, the Q and A was like an hour because we had Q and A in between each section of the presentation. There were still questions that were submitted before or after the webinar that we didn't have time to get to. So I wanted to answer some of those really quickly. So one of the one of the questions we got was for first time visitor to mainland China, which region would you recommend for beauty supplies and accessories? And are there any regions beyond mainland that I'd recommend for that? I, I think first of all, beyond mainland India is like especially if you're talking about well, no, actually, if we're talking about beauty supplies, then we're talking about like South Korea. I think South Korea is probably the second most popular place for beauty products and South Korea itself is just like like I guess beauty products that are made in South Korea tend to be a little bit more high-end so there's that but in terms of like accessories like hair like hair extensions and all that stuff India is where India is the source of 90% of it and then it gets shipped to China and there's like a mixture of Chinese hair and Indian hair and all that stuff but a region in mainland China that has both is Guangzhou and Guangdong province as a whole but mostly Guangzhou there's a there's a hair market here there's a beauty market here they have fairs as well there's like a giant beauty complex where there's you know thousands of suppliers for beauty accessories including hair it's just one of those things where you have to spend quite a bit of time to figure out who the best suppliers are with regards to that do all the manufacturers provide OEM or and ODM services well, first, the answer is no. Like, some factories do both, some factories do one, some factories do the other. Not all the factories are full-fledged factories. Like, if we're actually thinking about it from that perspective, like, even if a factory is technically a factory, it could also be an assembly house. So an assembly house is a supplier that basically receives, uh, ba like, let's say um, they're making this microphone here, this podcast mic, there might be the the, the stainless steel base and you know the, the handle here and then there's like a plastic case for the actual microphone then there's the electronics inside there's the rubber you know stops at the end 
all of those are different products made by different factories, most likely, right? And like one factory is not gonna have molding, injection molding machines for both stainless steel and plastic. I mean, they could, but it's unlikely because that makes it probably a larger factory. And maybe for this product in particular, because it's a, it's a world renowned, renowned brand or whatever, but like certain products, it just doesn't even make sense. Like if they were gonna source the rubber ends, like they might as well just source, outsource that and hire another supplier for that. There's probably some aspects, maybe the electronics, whatever, they'll just buy the stock electronics from somebody else and then put it together themselves. So there's some factories where they literally don't do anything. Like they maybe make one part of the, the product and maybe a very simple part of the product and then they source the other 10 pieces from somewhere else and then they just put it together themselves in their workshop. That's a, an assembly house. So an assembly house is probably not gonna provide ODM services just because they're not, they don't have that level of specialization, they don't have the machinery. You know, they're almost, almost a trading company. So it's like, uh, you know, a lot of times like the, a factory is not necessarily a factory. They could qualify technically as a factory on their business license, but you have to know like, you know, you're dealing with different sources from time to time. And of course, like I said, if you're dealing with a trading company, they could do ODM, but chances are they probably don't want to. It's going to take too long. It's too expensive. So they'd rather just lump your orders in with another, with a bunch of other, uh, other people. What are the benefits of launching your product or your business in China or Asia as a whole, as opposed to the US? And probably, I mean, you can add Europe and Australia and you know, other places, other territories. I mean, I mean, the first part is just the cost, right? Like that's just, that's the number one reason why China is the biggest manufacturer in the, for products around the world is the cost like it's cheaper to do it here so 20 30 years ago a bunch of big companies that were manufacturing stuff in their own countries or in the west decided you know what we can make millions more dollars if we shift to china and a little bit of other surrounding southeast asian countries but mostly china so i mean that's the first part is the, is the cost and then at this stage now that china's been doing it for such a long time it's the amount of options you have the logistics. I mean, of course, in the US, you have specialization. I was about to say specialization, but China probably has more specialization than most countries. Like there's a specialist factory for every single product you can imagine in China. And then they have the, the, the labor, like they have the labor force. Yeah, I mean, they have 1.1, billion people. Like and the vast majority of those people are not working in offices, right? They're working in farmland and in factories. So they just have a giant labor force. They have all those factors that I, I just mentioned. And then of course the cost. Um, and then just in general in Southeast Asia now, you know, it's even getting, it's even cheaper if you start talking about Vietnam and Thailand and the Philippines and all that. The negatives are obvious. The communication, language barrier, uh, differences in quality standards, ideas, cultural differences, certain materials that are more important to Western customers are maybe not as important here, so they're not really used that much. So yeah, I mean, those are the negatives. Besides manufacturers and suppliers, what are some other resources uh, entrepreneurs could take advantage of in Asia? I mean, I feel like my whole podcast is like explaining this, right? Like if you listen to, uh, we're at almost we're at like 100 and 128 episodes. I've interviewed so many people and not just in China, like a lot of the people I've interviewed are not based in China, even they're working through China. Um, obviously, I've done a lot in the Philippines. 
I've interviewed people in Indonesia, in Thailand, in Australia, and I think in New Zealand. You know, I've interviewed people around the world. So my point is that a lot of these people are dealing with China, but they're also dealing with adjacent countries around China and in Asia. And I think you have access to some of the most interesting, dynamic, successful entrepreneurs when you're a foreigner in Asia and it's because you're a minority. Whereas like if you were in your home country and you know, you're trying to meet the CEO of this giant e-commerce company, chances are you're just not gonna be able to meet that person because everybody is trying to meet that person. Everybody knows what that person is. There's, there's less of a sense of camaraderie. Whereas here, recently I was in the Philippines and I ran into Dan from Tropical NBA and it was just random. It wasn't even like, wasn't planned at all. It was through a friend, but even then I didn't know. I was like, I was hanging out at a, at a restaurant waiting for, you know, somebody to come meet me. And then I ran into my friend just having a walk into restaurant. And he says, hey, do you want to come and meet this group of guys? Come and say hi while you're waiting. I'm like, all right, no problem. I go over there and, and I find the, the owners of Empire Flippers, which is another gigantic e-commerce company that helps people sell their e-commerce businesses, their brokerage. And then Dan from Tropical NBA, I'm just like, just you know what I mean. I was just, it's just those, those are the kind of things I'm talking about. These are the people that, if we were, if we had the exact same, play out the exact same scenario in Canada, chances are we might not be hanging out in the same places, just because I probably wouldn't be able to afford to hang out in the same places that they hang out. They would be in more exclusive locations. And then even if we met, they might have been less willing to engage with a new person because when you're in your home country, you already have an established network and you have an established friends and things like that. Whereas like when you're in a foreign country, you have an established network, but you're always willing to bring in more people to that network because inherently, you know, your network isn't that big. So, and you, you know that the only way for expects to succeed is to help each other succeed because the locals are less likely to help us succeed so that's a that's a big advantage i would say is like the networking aspect and meeting people that you should not normally be able to meet is is huge all right somebody asked um do you always need to produce a prototype before you go into mass production i think as standard practice you should always try to and, and I, when we're, we're referencing original design here we're not talking about OEM products, so as OEM products, you wouldn't necessarily have to make a prototype, you just buy a sample from them. So I think it's good because what happens is when you make a prototype, it's a test in a couple of different ways. It's a test for the factory to understand the intricacies of actually making the product. So, you know, in the process of them making the prototype, they're gonna learn how difficult or how easy it is to make this product. Um, and then at the same time, it's a test for you because you're testing whether the factory understands your concept. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and it's good just to have that physical prototype that you're saying, yes, this is what I, I envisioned, this is my design, and you guys have made it like as close as possible to what I was thinking. Or you can say, oh, this is close, but we need to change this. Or, or when you physically see the prototype, you might be like, oh, okay. I had an idea when it was a 3D rendering uh, a CAD or, or a 2D drawing, but seeing it in person, it, maybe it's a little bit too big, maybe there's certain aspects of it, especially if you can get a functional prototype made, maybe the functionality isn't what you're expecting, you wanna you know tweak it. So yeah, I think it's extremely important, but there are certain situations where you can't 
make a physical prototype because the cost of making the physical prototype is prohibitive or it's just it, the making a 3D proto, a physical prototype because of the materials that are involved it just wouldn't even prove anything really so like a good example is if you're making products out of glass you can make a plastic 3D printed version of that product to confirm scale and maybe the you know the design I guess but it's not really going to be practical because it's a completely different material so you know, those are, the, those are certain situations where you might end up having to pay for a mold before you actually go into the prototyping phase. So in that situation, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. You want to make sure that you do the stuff that you usually do after you make the prototype, which is like physically visiting the factory, getting contracts in place, all of those things, like just doing as much vetting as possible and making sure that the factory understands that just because you're paying for the mold and you're getting started, it doesn't mean that you're going to jump into mass production. The mold has to be made a certain way. The product that comes out of the mold has to be what you want it to be. And if it's not what it, what you want it to be, they have to make changes and, and improve the mold. Like that's a huge thing, right? So some some products are a little bit more cost prohibitive and difficult to, to produce. All right, so a really good question I've seen now popping up, not just in the webinar itself, but like, in the InterChina group chat on WeChat was about dropshipping. So, you know, and also it's not just dropshipping because a lot of people are launching crowdfunding campaigns. They now have to have a solution to ship all these individual units around the world, right? So there's the dropshipping aspect and then there's also like if you launch a campaign and you pre-sell and you're pre-selling globally, how do you get, you know, one package from here to, you know, Papua New Guinea or whatever like the, the first part is the fulfillment centers picking the right hub is the first point right so if the vast majority of your sales are in North America and Europe maybe you want to pick a hub that's closer to there but if you have a, a pretty decent spread then you can use Hong Kong Hong Kong is is probably one of the best ports you can use for fulfillment uh, globally there are quite a few different companies. I think one of them is Flowship. Um, there's another one that I'm, I can't think of, but we've worked and we know people that have worked with Flowship before. I think a few years ago, I'm not sure they had the best reviews, but I think they were sort of like figuring out their stuff. Um, but if you do a Google search of 3PLs or you know fulfillment centers, Hong Kong, there's gonna be a bunch of companies that come up and most of these companies have been reviewed in like Facebook groups and Reddit groups about dropshipping and stuff like that. So it's pretty easy to kind of figure out which ones are the most popular. A lot of these three pails, if you're doing, if you're talking about dropshipping specifically, they'll even integrate with your Shopify store or e-commerce site. And you know, you'll, they'll fulfill your orders. Like when you get an order, they fulfill it for you. So it's a little bit more automated. I know that some people have been able to engage through for AliExpress, obviously like connecting AliExpress to the Shopify and then the information gets forwarded directly to the, the factory that they're working with. A lot of factories will, if you have a good relationship with your factories and you're doing you know good business, a lot of factories will be down to come onto a platform and start fulfilling orders. So like receiving orders, like having it more automated where they log into the platform and they are integrated and then they're receiving orders and fulfilling them for you and drop shipping directly from mainland, directly from the actual factories themselves. So, you know, there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, I think, you know, I think uh, getting a fulfillment center is probably going to be the easiest one. 
if you don't want to work with the suppliers in AliExpress, because I know the quality is inconsistent. But yeah, I know fulfillment center out of Hong Kong is probably going to be your best option when it comes to trying to do fulfillment on a global scale with individual units that have to be drop shipped. Two last ones really quickly. One was about what confidential documents do you need to sign with a factory before sending them any sort of proprietary information. I think, I mean, I've said this quite a few times, non-disclosure agreements, it's pretty standard. It's not going to necessarily stop them from copying your product, but it's definitely a deterrent. Um, it also shows the factory that you're serious. And it's also just like a little hoop that they have to jump through rather before you start working with them or sending them information. So I think an NDA would be standard. There's also NNNs, non-circumvent, non-compete, non and then non-disclosure. That's a little bit of overkill in my opinion. I, I think, you know, like why spend that much time and effort getting a factory design and NNN when it's not really that enforceable, you know what I mean? Unless you're really entering into some sort of serious partnership with the factory, I just don't see the point of it. It needs to be a situation that makes sense. The, 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 has, the money has to make sense. And then also, you, like I said, your relationship and the, the long-term nature of the relationship has to be clearly defined before you start talking about NNNs. Uh, last question is about the trade war. So <laughs> this is a very, you know, I have answered this recently and I did a podcast with founder, one of the founders from China and Portal, Friedrich. We had a little deep dive conversation into that. He's way more educated about this subject than I am because he spends a lot of time paying attention to it. Personally, so far, it hasn't really affected my business in that sense. Like I definitely have cl clients who are paying more taxes on their products, import taxes. But I think what's ultimately happening is that eventually they're raising their prices. So the, the extra expenses are being pushed onto the American consumers. And obviously, people know China played around with the currencies and lowered the, uh, the, <laughs> lowered the, 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 the cost of the UN. So that also helped with stimulating more people to buy stuff. And I think in general, and then another, another tip is maybe talk to your freight forwarders because what happens is when you, the, the way they decide how much taxes you're gonna pay in the US is every product that you import has an HS code. So the HS code is like a global code. It's a standard that says like, when you put in this code onto your, your bill of lading and your import documents, the customs person or the customs company that's going through everything will see this HS code and then they know, okay, for this HS code 001567, whatever, this is a plastic cutlery and the cost of this is, you know, the import cost is 15% or whatever the percentage might be. And I think they go based on, I think they come up with those percentages based off of like, whether that product could have been made in the US and stuff like that. But so you can play around with them because there's thousands of HS codes, like there's just so many. So there's products, if you talk to your your freight forwarder, they can probably, you know, finagle and say like, all right, so this product is technically this HS code, but it could fit into this category. You save money that way. One of my friends sells on Amazon, had that situation happen where his tariffs were gonna go up, I believe by 10% or 12%. Actually, no, no, they were, they were gonna go up more than that. It was like 20 something percent. And then he spoke to his freight forwarder and the freight forwarder said, hey, we can actually just change the category. And then he ended up saving 5% on his, on his import taxes. So uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I would say that's one thing. Try to, try to see if you can maybe look into that, talk to your freight forwarder, see if there's a way to save money 
with regards to your HS code. And then I think at the end of the day, even with the tariffs, even if you're paying 40% more than what you're paying, 90% of the products you're going to source are still going to be cheaper to make in China than they are to do to make in the US, right? So that's just the reality of it. The other thing is I made a video uh, China versus other Southeast Asian countries, so I'm not going to talk about that now. So if you want to check out that video, link will be in the description below. China just is so far advanced in, from an infrastructure standpoint that products that require any sort of expertise in machinery, it's going to be a while before, if ever, um, before the other countries sort of catch up to it. So yeah, I check out that video and I, I do a, a deeper dive into my thoughts on you know working with countries that are surrounding uh, China and Southeast Asia. Alright, so uh, that's it. I think that's, an, that's a ton of questions I answered. I hope uh, any of you guys that didn't have the chance to be on the webinar caught the replay. The guys that are on the webinar that are watching this video, I hope you appreciate my answers and I answered everything to the best of my ability. And yeah, if you guys want, want me to you know, answer some of your specific questions, drop a comment in the, in the comment section below. And of course, as usual, like, comment, share, subscribe, 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 and I will see you guys next week. Cheers. Yeah.